Hey there, Amy Gastelum here. Before we start the show, I just want to make a quick request to rate us, follow us, and subscribe to Making Contact on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> I'm Nita Johnson, and this is Making Contact. On this week's program, we bring you a story of urban planning and how race has shaped American cities. In a new book, Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption, Mitchell Schwartzer explores the origins and lasting impacts of transportation improvements, systemic racism, and regional competition on Oakland's built environment. Schwartzer, an architectural and urban historian, pulls from his experience as a city planner and educator to tell the story of a city divided. Hellatown provided me with a detailed understanding of the city I've called home for a couple decades. I've known the city to be divided amongst racial groups, each living in their own enclaves, but I never quite knew what got us here. Keep in mind, growing up, I have friends of all different ethnic backgrounds. We all didn't live in the same neighborhood, but we all went to the same high school. The book, Hellatown, shows how racism has intrinsically been a part of the city's planning and design. I spoke with Schwartzer about the early history of Oakland's black population. In Oakland from 1940 to 1980 went from 2.6% black to 48% black. It, almost half the city now is black. It's the, they're the single largest group in Oakland by 1980. And yet they're excluded from most residential neighborhoods. They're excluded from most types of jobs. If you look in the 1920s, it was a city that, since it was white, most people had the hope of profiting from business, you know, from their jobs and, and buying a home. And they, they could succeed in Oakland. They had that, that possibility was there for them. For the blacks who came to Oakland during the Second World War, they hoped for the same thing. They got it for a little while, certainly during the war years, a little bit less in the 15 years after the war. But starting in the early 1960s with deindustrialization, they see their hopes and dreams, you know, collapse. Oakland, California is known as one of the most diverse and progressive cities in the nation. Yet the city still grapples with uneven access to resources based on class and race. And it's not unique to Oakland. There's a popular assumption that fair housing laws have led to more integrated cities and neighborhoods. Diversity is on the rise in many U.S. cities, but more than 80% of metropolitan areas in the U.S. have become more segregated since 1990. Oakland's history of division and inequitable land distribution has shaped the experiences and opportunities of generations of Oaklanders. Mitchell Schwartzer takes us back to the automobile boom and how this era helped shape Oakland's development. The most dramatic is the freeway, right? Uh, Oakland built uh, the Caltrans, the state built four freeways. This is with federal dollars and state dollars. Uh, and they were built between the late 1940s and the 1970s. So the first one was the East Shore Freeway, which is now called Interstate 880. And that was built along the flatlands, along the industrial corridor and right through downtown, right? So, and that it was built, finished in 1958. And it went, you know, it went from the San Leandro, it went all the way down to San Jose. So it went from the San Leandro line all through East Oakland, through right through downtown. They took out 13 entire blocks of downtown. And then it went right through the middle of West Oakland. 
West Oakland has long been home to a huge Black population. When the construction of the freeway leading to the Bay Bridge cut through West Oakland, countless Black families were displaced. The first freeway kind of gives you a sense of what's going to happen, you know, the destructive aspects of freeway construction. One, it, you know, it tore apart downtown. It tore the the kind of older waterfront part of downtown toward the estuary apart from the other part of downtown. So from now on, you had to go under a freeway to move uh, around downtown. Secondly, it went through three the three largest minority communities in Oakland at the time. One, it went right through Chinatown. Then it went through what was the Mexican community, the large Mexican community along 7th and 6th Street, which relocated to East Oakland after that point. And Chinatown relocated a little bit north. And then it went right through the largest predominant Black community in Oakland, West Oakland. So it was the freeway took the path of least resistance in, in terms of the minority communities having, you know, being less affluent and having no political power at that point, the freeway right, right through their communities. And it, the freeway in West Oakland was a double decker. It, it's where Mandana Parkway is now. Uh, and it, you know, it divides, you know, you're talking about like a 40 foot wall in the middle of West Oakland. It collapsed, right? 1989, 46 people were killed. It was actually 42 people that died that day when the Loma Prieta earthquake hit the Bay Area and a portion of the double-decker Cypress Freeway collapsed in West Oakland. But along with the tragedy came an opportunity. The freeway had been attributed to polluting the community for years and being an overall eyesore. I can still recall how the freeway towered above the neighborhood, mainly populated by people of color. In the wake of the collapse, the city responded to community pressure and decided to rebuild in a more industrialized area. The freeway is now to the west along the Southern Pacific Railroad corridor, and the freeway's former path was converted to a green space with flowers, grass, and a walking path. But there are places all over the city where freeways cut right through the middle of things. A lot of streets, you can think about like uh, Martin Luther King, Grove and Shattuck, you know, are, a lot of streets between the two are cut off. Uh, so there, you have this phenomenon of lots of dead-end streets all along wherever there are freeways, you know, because there are only so many bridges or tunnels under the freeway to get across. When the I-580 located east of the 880 freeway was built in 1963, Caltrans and the Federal Highway Administration banned all trucks weighing more than 4.5 tons. So that means cleaner air and a better quality of life. But those trucks were pushed over to the other freeway, the A80, creating congestion and increased pollution in neighborhoods where the majority of the residents were people of color. So it, it not only you know cuts right into the middle of communities, it also divides communities. And lastly, I think the freeways also created an environment alongside them that was rather toxic, both to pedestrians, to businesses, and to li- and and to living, because you know your gas stations, auto repair businesses start to locate near the freeway eg- entrances and exits, uh, and you know you see this like for instance you know by the twenty four where it hits fifty uh, first street, you know the you start to get these kind of big automotive zones around the freeway you know intersection with with the city streets, and it it, it kind of adds to the divisions of Oakland, you know, and the kind of making it into a less pleasant place to, to, you know, to actually walk around and to live in. So 
that's probably the most dramatic, you know, and, and because Oakland, because of its location, because of our location, right, at the eastern side of the, you know, right across from San Francisco, Oakland becomes the center of the freeway network, right? The, the major freeway, most of the major freeways, the ones that head north, you know, 80, which heads towards Sacramento and the East Coast, you know, the 580, which heads toward the Central Valley and then Los Angeles, uh, they're located in Oakland, you know, the 880 heads all the way down to San Jose, you know, so Oakland has a lot of land taken up by freeways. And later, BART will, the same phenomenon happens with BART, BART, which is constructed during the 60s into the early 70s, also is sort of centered in Oakland. And of course, there were also another couple of horrible developments in West Oakland at the exact same time. Everything is happening from the late 50s to the uh, very early 1970s. Uh, the, the huge regional post office is built uh, right next to where the BART lines are, and it takes out 18 blocks, 18 entire blocks, mostly housing. And then the largest uh, slum clearance in Oakland occurs also in West Oakland, the Acorn Project, which takes out over 100 blocks of industry and, and housing and replaces them with what was supposed to be a uh, mixed race moderate income development that didn't pan out at all. So the automobile and then later urban renewal and other projects like BART, you know, really devastated large parts of Oakland and disproportionately West Oakland got the bulk of it. Why West Oakland? Is it because, as you mentioned, the communities of least resistance were they predominantly black minority communities? Is that particularly why West Oakland was the targeted area? Completely. I, I think West Oakland was targeted because the community in West Oakland in the 1950s and 60s had virtually no political power and was quite poor. So it was a case of, of basically taking the uh, essential infrastructural developments and putting them in areas that would not affect the affluent community and the political, you know, the leaders of the community. They, it didn't, you know, Piedmont has none of these things. You know, there's not a freeway, there's not a bar line. You know, there's very little commerce in Piedmont. Piedmont, you know, is a exclusive, pleasant residential community. Uh, by contrast, West Oakland got a lot of infrastructure uh, that would serve the people from Piedmont. You know, they'd be able to drive on the freeways, they'd be able to take the BART lines, but it wasn't in their community. And it was, yeah, it was, it was completely, I think, racially based and uh, class based. Both of those, yeah. Mitchell, explain to the listeners uh, how. And if at all were these communities, individuals compensated, and and how do you think it also impacted these uh, communities' ability to secure wealth generationally? I think they were not compensated. There was supposed to be. I'll give you an example, like Acorn, the big Acorn housing. You know, the goal of Acorn was to create a. I would call it a cordon sanitaire, a zone between poor and black West Oakland and what was. The city leaders wanted for downtown in the 1960s, which was to make downtown more like downtown San Francisco, it, uh, a more of a white collar office district and also including residential for middle class and upper middle class whites. And so the Acorn development was supposed to be a 50 50 white black. It was supposed to have you know, working class, but also more moderate income and middle income people as a kind of buffer. So, you know, there was this direct attempt 
to transform part of West Oakland into a buffer zone that would allow downtown Oakland to become more affluent and, and you know, white collar. That's, you know, that's just a great example of trying to change the nature of the city right at the period when there, you know, you have deindustrialization. There's a lot of industrial jobs start moving out in the 60s and, and into the 70s and beyond. So, you know, you have it's it's a real tragedy for the community in West Oakland because the community in West Oakland, I mean, it it people did not have the ability to move anywhere they wanted to, right? And that brings in that, that second question about, you know, generational wealth. Uh, it, it wasn't Oakland that did this. It was a federal government plan uh, in the 1930s, you know, under the uh, under Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. He established a uh, federal housing administration, a new agency that changed the way mortgages were processed and used. So up until up until the 1930s, mortgages, you had to pay most of your money if you bought a house. You had to pay 50% down or more. Yeah. During the, you know, the New Deal changes that. You can now put down 10%, much lower, much lower down payment, uh, makes it easier to buy a house. And during the Great Depression, that was the goal. The goal was to stimulate housing develop, uh, construction and purchases. He also changes the terms of the mortgage, you know. Uh, from a longer period, you can pay it over a much longer period. Earlier, it was five years often, sometimes 10. Now it goes out to 30 years. So this is all intended to boost housing production. And lastly, they instituted under the terms of the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was part of the Federal Housing Administration, a system of evaluating the risk for banks in granting mortgages for residential or commercial development or any improvement projects. And this, this system is now called, we call it redlining now. And what the system was, was a, a rating of the geography of a city into four and turning that geography into four zones, which were colored green, blue, yellow, and red. And the reds were the hazardous zones. Basically, it, the federal government said to banks, if the zones are red, we're not guaranteeing anything. And those are you basically stay, don't invest into those zones because they're it's hazardous. And the green and blue zones, by contrast, where yes, those are perfect, you know, uh, safe zones, and that's where we're encouraging most uh, investment. And the way they came up with the the four zones was a system of criteria. The first was if if a geographic area had a mix of building ages. So if you had buildings from the 1870s and 1890s and 1920s, that was bad. That, that, that started to put you in a yellow or red zone. It was not good to have mixed uh, ages of buildings. It was better if everything was built, let's say in the 20s or early 30s. And this these maps were uh, codified in the late 1930s. So that was one, one criteria. The second criteria was uses. Uh, it was much better if, if a zone was completely residential. If, if, all, if all you had were housing, that was the, you, got a, you could get a green. If you had some commerce just here and there, it could be blue. If you had a mix of commerce and then a little bit of industry, it would usually turn to yellow. And if you had a lot of industry and commerce and residents, it would turn to red. So mixed uses was negative. And lastly, mixed race. So if you had people, what they considered from different racial groups, and they, you know, they specified if there were black residents living alongside white residents, that was a negative. 
if there were Asian residents and, and, and Latino residents and whites, it was negative. So what they were calling for were exclusive homogeneous racial zones. And those received the better uh, rankings. Those became blue and green. So if you look at the Oakland maps from 1938, the blue and green zones are all in the, in the lower hills and upper hills because those were the newer areas. Those were the areas that were exclusively white because they had been operating under racial covenants for like 20 years by now, which are, which are deeds built into, the, uh, into a house or a subdivision that say only people of the Caucasian race can live here or black. They didn't use the word blacks. They used other terms that were more, we consider now derogatory. They would say, you know, those people cannot live here or Mexicans cannot live here or people of Asian or Chinese Oriental, they often said, cannot live here. So you already had the system, which was done by basically promulgated by realtors and, and developers to exclude minorities from and create all white communities. And now the federal government goes into the same, you know, basically extends that and strengthens it through the whole, you know, uh, ranking and redlining system. And so if you look at the combined uh, impact from racial covenants, which start in the, the teens roughly, and then redlining, which starts in the thirties, and both of them go well into the sixties and probably, in, you know, under law until the early 1970s, when the final laws are established that ban all of those kind of practices, you had a system of systemic housing discrimination in Oakland for, you know, we're talking like 70 years almost. And so if you're a minority in Oakland, you know, you were basically excluded from new housing. You were excluded also from the suburbs like San Leandro, Hayward, Castro Valley, the Walnut Creek, these were also almost exclusively white when they were developing in the 50s and 60s. You know, minorities could not move to those areas. They were covenants against their moving there. And, and then the whole the way the federal government guaranteed loans for vets, they couldn't get those either. So I would say a system of housing discrimination that extended over much of the 20th century allowed whites to build up equity in property. And so minorities were really screwed by that whole process. And to this day, the difference in wealth between, let's say, just blacks and whites is, I think it's 13 times. It's something huge. And that stems, a lot of that stems from housing wealth. And a lot of the housing gap stems from these kind of discriminatory practices that were, I would call them, they were systemic. By systemic, I mean, they were the practice, the everyday practice of business, and they were codified in government, right, government right. policy, business and government. So that, you know, that leads to a, you could call that systemic housing discrimination. And that accounts for a lot of the uh, uh, wealth disparity that it persists to this day. You're listening to Mitchell Schwartzer discuss his book, Hellatown. Oakland's history of development and disruption on making contact. If you like what you're hearing, you can visit us online for more information, or you can leave us a comment at radioproject.org. And now back to the show. Looking at Oakland's history of development and disruption, Oakland's migration boom of Blacks coming from the South began, what, in the 1940s? 
and it slowed in the 1980s. What in particular was happening in Oakland at the time and how did the city's development and urban planning attempt to address this boom or this migration of black folks coming to Oakland? Um, so it, it, the, the migration is brought about by the mobilization for the Second World War. So in, in 1940, I think the black percentage in Oakland was 2.6, relatively low. By 1980, it was above 48%. That's a huge increase, right? The city really changes dramatically in those 40 years. And then after 1980, you see a huge migration starting in the 70s, but you see a huge migration of people from Latin America, primarily Mexico, Central America, and East Asia to Oakland to the point where the Latin, Latino community in 2020 is the largest single community in the city. And I think whites are second, blacks are third at about 20% and Asians are about 18%. But you get a real, you know, you know, all Oakland in 1940 was 94% white. So, and now it's about 27% white. So it's really changed. Uh, and, and first black community, first big black migration. And then secondly, later a Latino and Asian migration into Oakland. Um, the black migration was stimulated by the war and the promise of good jobs in, 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 war, in wartime industry, shipbuilding and all sorts of industrial production. You know, the American GDP doubled during the Second World War. I mean, it's incredible from 1940 to 1945. And this is a tremendous opportunity now to go to Los Angeles or to go to Oakland. There were migrations. There had been migrations already since the 20s toward New York and Philadelphia and Chicago and Detroit. So you have an enormous migration of blacks from the south to the north and west for the promise of better jobs and less racial discrimination. And it's wonderful at first, I think. I think during the 40s, you know, the, the black migrants don't get the best jobs. There are unions that prevent them, you know, white, white dominated unions that prevent them from getting the best jobs. You know, let's say in uh, steam fitter union and other types of, uh, you know, higher trained work, but they get a lot of good, they get jobs and they get jobs that are so much better than what they've had. And they move into Oakland and, and to Berkeley and to Richmond and San Francisco. And things are going really well. It's called the Great Compression, where for the first time in American history, black employment and black salaries start to get closer to whites. You know, it, it compresses and it's a great period. What happens is the war ends and a lot of wartime industries, you know, they decelerate, they start to lay off workers and it tends to be the black workers are laid off first. And so in the late 40s, there's a bit of dislocation. But then in the 50s, a lot of industries are doing well in the late 40s and 50s. And so it's not a bad period. And so the black migration continues, you know, it, it accelerates during the during the 50s and into the 60s. The problem comes is that if you look at the 1960s, pretty much most, you know, black employment was in industry. It, you know, it had been earlier in domestic service and in the railroads, right? Uh, now it's mostly in industry. And Oakland had an incredibly large industrial sector up until the 60s. You know, we were producing everything from uh, general electric light bulbs to general motors, automobiles. To, we were canning things. We were producing ships. We were producing radios. 
We're producing, you know, uh, uh, calculators, a lot of food industry. You know, it was a, a big industrial sector and blacks were employed across this industrial sector. One of the problems was in the professional sector, there's virtually no black employment. So you have a low black employment outside of industry that persists. That starts to change in the 70s. But in the 60s, it's pretty low. And then what happens in the early 1960s? Deindustrialization, the beginnings of deindustrialization. And from, I'd say, from shipbuilding, which really starts to collapse after the war, and then the major automotive assembly plants in Oakland, there were three, they all moved out of the city in, in between 60 and 63. Most of the canneries closed by the 70s. General Electric closes its three plants by the 80s. And you go down the list. And so between the early 60s and the 90s, a great portion of Oakland's industrial jobs are lost. And, and then finally, the three large military bases, and there was one in Alameda, so you could say there were four in this area, the Alameda Naval Air Station, the Oakland Army Base, the Oakland Naval Supply Depot, and the Oakland Naval Hospital, they all close in the, in the 90s. And that was a source of huge Black employment. Like over 30 to 40% of the employees at those bases were Black. So there's a, a bloodbath of employment that occurs over the last third of the 20th century, more, you know, last quarter, third of the 20th century, really, from the 60s into the 90s, where, where the Black migrants who had come to Oakland with great hopes, you know, in the from the 40s to the 60s and 70s, uh, by, by the end of the 20th century, there's high, there's really high unemployment and the hopes are dashed. And, uh, you know, it was very hard, for instance, for blacks to go to the suburban job, you know, the jobs moved to the suburbs and it's hard for them to go to the suburbs because BART never established a system for, you know, moving, BART was all about getting people into downtown Oakland and really into downtown San Francisco, right? It's really an adjunct of the freeway system and an alternative to the Bay Bridge. So it's about getting people to the downtown cores it was not about like, oh, get let's get people to now General Motors, which relocated from what is now Eastmont Town Center. That's where they were. And they had another plant on uh, International by the San Landro line. They moved those to what is now Tesla in Fremont. That's, that was first General Motors, that, that the current Tesla plant. There was no system for like, let's say, having shuttle buses by AC Transit from from the Bard in Fremont to, to the General Motors plant. You know, they didn't think that way to get the people from the inner city who are largely minority at this point out to the suburban jobs. So that occurs all through the, the, the second half of the 20th century. And in it probably starts to account for, you know, why the black population starts to decline after 1980. You know, but the, the main reason it starts to decline is that you don't have new migrants coming. And for every population, the only way a population stays stable or increases is you have to have lots of new migrants coming. And the black migration basically ceases by the late 70s and then reverses. And black, you know, since the since 80, the last 40 years or so, a lot of blacks have done what whites have done in Oakland and they've moved out to the suburbs. And so there's been an outward suburban migration of blacks and there hasn't been an in flux inward. There's also been a migration out of California entirely toward the South and other parts of the country. And then, of course, we've had a large uh, influx 
of what we call gentrification, which are people who are affluent and educated and largely white and somewhat Asian. And they've been moving into Oakland in large numbers because of the housing prices on the west side of the Bay. Oakland has been relatively affordable compared to San Francisco, Palo Alto, Marin County. So you've seen a lot of people move from the west side of the Bay to the east side of the Bay. And that has changed the demographics as well. Yeah. That was Mitchell Schwartzer, author of Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. For more information about today's program and Schwartzer's book, visit us at radioproject.org. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.